Well, just to, um, to set the record straight this morning, I'm not an Anglican. I would have a little collar if I was an Anglican. Uh, perhaps a Baplican, but not an Anglican. Um, this is the first Sunday in Lent, uh, a season of readiness for the cross, and um, on our on our leader blog, on our website, which I, I hope by now that you've subscribed to that. Every week we're publishing things that are in, to be an encouragement for you. If you haven't subscribed, let me encourage you to. But there's uh, a resource there called the Lenten Project, and it says that on the Christian calendar, Lent, from Latin meaning 40th, and if you can give me that Lenten slide, please, that'd be great, thank you, is the 40 days excluding Sundays that begin on Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday, and lead up to Easter Sunday. Lent is a season of preparation and repentance during which we anticipate the death, Good Friday, and the resurrection, Easter Sunday, of Jesus. It is this very preparation and repentance aimed at grasping the intense significance of the crucifixion that gives us a deep and powerful longing for the resurrection, the joy of Easter. So Lent, they write, is a journey to the cross, uh, meditating on our sin and weakness, looking to Jesus as our perfect example and substitute, being heightened in our worship of his victory over Satan, sin, and death. On the cross... Jesus took our place to appease God's righteous anger toward our sin and rebellion. He was separated from God so that we could experience union with God. He was crushed by God so that we could be adopted by God. He was raised with God so that we too might be raised with God. The drama of how this unfolded is the story of Lent. The journey of Lent is to immerse ourselves in this grand story so that it might increase our appreciation of Easter and deepen our love for Jesus. May we mourn the darkness in our hearts and rejoice in the light of God who came into the world to save us. And so this is what we hope to do together over the next six weeks. Um, to mourn the darkness in our hearts and rejoice in the light of God who came into the world to save us. And so, as Daniel mentioned, to aid in that focus, we've rearranged the furniture, okay? So that the focus is on the table, which we will celebrate together every week in Lent leading up to the Maundy Thursday candlelight service that we have just before Easter. Um, Each um, um, one of our Northwake uh, artisans is handcrafting a cross this week that will be, but will join the display here in the center of the room so that our focus visually, centrally, every week will be on the Lord's table and upon the cross. Um, in addition, tonight our, our monthly corporate prayer gathering is, is given over this evening to kind of a gateway to Lent to get your heart ready uh, for this season of repentance and drawing near to God and, and worshiping God. Um, we'll have a chance tonight 
to hear the scriptures read from each of the gospels, the account of Jesus' death on our behalf. And we'll have a chance to pray for our church as we enter into this time of drawing near to God in this special, special season. We are going to step out of our study of the book of Hebrews until after Easter, and we're going to focus on the last week of the life of Jesus. We're going to take one day, um, occasionally two days of that week, each Sunday, we're going to focus on what Jesus did and what he taught, and we are going to walk with Jesus in his steps. We are going to sit under his teaching for the next six weeks as we walk through that week together. It it might seem like a lot to spend six weeks focusing on just one week of Jesus' life. Until you realize that in John's gospel, um, the last week of Jesus' life starts in chapter 12 of John's gospel and runs the next nine chapters, almost half of John's record of Jesus' life is given over to this one week. And so it will do us well to slow down, um, take this season, deeply turn from our sins, draw near to God, think and worship deeply. This week changed the world, and it changed us. And so we want to We want to draw near to Christ together this next season. Just think deeply. Worship beautifully our Savior. And so if you'll you'll bow with me in in prayer, we'll, we'll, we'll begin that process together in the Word right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we... um, We're uh, easily distracted people, and we need this season to restore order to our hearts and to our lives, really. That the busyness of work and school and family and friends and church um, might be realigned in these next weeks around you. That we might grasp together more deeply than we ever have how how long and wide and high and deep is the love of God for us. And so, Spirit of God, help us now. As, as the scriptures are opened for us, give us ears to hear and hearts eager to receive, to believe, and, uh, and feet to go and do. And this we ask in Christ's great name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's traditional when you start looking at the last week of Jesus life, it's called the Passion Week, that you start on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, which many of us are familiar with, but the records actually start the day before on what um, the Eastern Orthodox Church calls Lazarus Saturday. And the record of that you find in your Bible in John chapter 12. And so let me encourage you, open your Bibles up to John chapter 12, that's where we'll, we'll be this morning. It begins this way. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So this is six days before not just any Passover. This would be Jesus' last Passover. 
Um, this is the Passover to end all Passovers. Jesus is not coming to Jerusalem just to participate in the Passover. He is coming to fulfill it. And on this Passover, Jesus would offer himself as that sacrificial Paschal lamb for the sins of the world. And so on this day in our story, it's the Sabbath before Palm Sunday, we find Jesus coming to the village of Bethany. This is a picture of the village of Bethany from about 125 years ago, and you can see it was still a small village almost in our day. Um, it sits just in the outskirts of Jerusalem, uh, a mere two miles from that great city. And Bethany would be for Jesus during this week a, a place of refuge. We'll find him returning at least one night, perhaps more, uh, back to Bethany where he would spend the night. Um, Bethany was the place where John the Baptist baptized many with the baptism of repentance in this little village. Um, it would be, Bethany would be the last place Jesus would walk on this earth. It was from Bethany that he would ascend to heaven. Um, I think Bethany must have been one of Jesus' favorite spots. And uh, just before he would arrive here though, in this little village just outside of Jerusalem for this final Passover celebration, people were wondering whether he would come at all. Um, back up just a couple verses into chapter 11 of John with me, where we see that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. One writer said that the leader's hostility pervades the next eight chapters like a pollutant. Okay. They are after Jesus. And so the people in the crowd are thinking, it's almost as though they're thinking, surely he dare not come here now, will he? Surely he won't show up at this Passover. Um, his arrest had been ordered. The trap has been set. Surely he's not going to come here now. But, but six days before the fast, Passover, we find Jesus coming, don't we? We find him coming to Bethany, just two miles from the city of his death. And so six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. They're having a dinner for Jesus. Can you advance that to the next slide for me? It should be John 12, verses 1 and 2. Thank you. They gave a dinner for him there. Um, they're having a dinner for Jesus. Um, somehow I doubt it was a dinner like when you have me over for dinner or I have you over for dinner. I think this was like the dinner. The dinner of all, all dinners. It was a celebration. Let me, let me see if I can explain to you why. When you read uh, this story, this account of uh, chapter 12, it's recorded not just in John, but also, also in Matthew and, 
and in Mark, and they bring little different bits of light to it. Um, Mark tells us that this, is, that this is happening at Simon the leper's house. That's whose house Jesus is at in, in Bethany. Um, and you have to wonder, what are a group of Jews, observant Jews, doing in the home of a leper? Lepers were required to walk on the opposite side of the street and cry out, unclean, unclean, so no one could have any contact with them. What are these Jews doing in a leper's home? Unless he's Simon the ex-leper. I think Simon the leper who'd been cleansed by Jesus. That's my guess. And so I wonder if that's why Simon is hosting the dinner. Um, Jesus had given him his life back. And then, of course, we see that Lazarus is there with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And um, have they ever got a reason to be at the dinner, right? Jesus literally gave Lazarus his life back. And you just turn back a page. It happens in John chapter 11. It says, Jesus, deeply moved again in verse 38, came to Lazarus' tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of Lazarus, the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor. He has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died, he came out. And his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. See, Simon had been given his health back. And Lazarus has been given his life back. And Mary and Martha had been given their brother back. Do you get a sense for what we have just wandered in on at this dinner? It's not an ordinary lunch appointment. I think it is an outpouring of gratitude, a celebration of Jesus and his life-giving power. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And so we see everybody's in their role, right? Martha's doing her thing. She's serving. We're going to see in a moment Mary is worshiping. And Lazarus is reclining at table. I think he's just glad to be there, right? <laughs> but Lazarus is the first one they mention. He's, he's the focal point. This is where it starts. This is, this is why in part it's called Lazarus Saturday. John focuses our intention there on Lazarus, the resurrected one. And I, I find myself just wondering, 
Um, why Jesus was at this meal, why he, why he chose Bethany, why he's with this collection of people, especially why Lazarus. And I wonder, was it good for Jesus? Now, he's just two miles and six days from the cross. Was it good for him to sit in the presence of his dear friend Lazarus, the resurrected one? To sit with a man who didn't just cheat death, that's what we say when someone who has a near miss, right? It's not someone who didn't just cheat death. This is someone who conquered death, experienced death, and was brought back from death. Did this boy Jesus' spirits to sit with Lazarus? Was he encouraged when he heard Lazarus' laughter and watched how his sisters loved him? Did it remind him that, that things would work out and that it was worth it? Did it strengthen his resolve? Maybe. And then there's the symbolism of it all. Of course, Lazarus, he's the walking, talking object lesson of resurrection power for the disciples, right? He's the poster boy. Um, Jesus had warned them earlier, Matthew records it, before this conversation. He says to his disciples, Jesus says it straight up. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Um, Then he adds with great specificity, and he will be raised on the third day. And so there sits Lazarus. Exhibit A. Resurrection man, okay? Um, Great object lesson for the disciples, and I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus and his disciples were at Bethany in Simon's house for the meal. But the focus in the story shifts from Lazarus, and it skips right past Martha and her service And it lands on Mary in verse 3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Um, Nard was an expensive perfume imported uh, from uh, places like India. Um, and a pound of it was a lot of perfume. Guys, if you buy perfume for your wives, you don't buy it by the pound, right? <laughs> you buy it by the ounce. It's like 3.4 ounces, and we'll take all your money, right? This is that kind of situation. It's, a, it's an expensive uh, perfume used for anointing, used for incense, um, and if it was in a liquid form, what we have here is about a Coke can's worth, okay? Don't sell perfume by the Coke can. This is a lot of perfume. Um, and Mary, 
anoints Jesus' feet with it. Uh, If you read Matthew and Mark's accounts, they say she anointed his head with it. And when you have a Coke can full of perfume, you can do both. And probably that's what happened. Um, And in Matthew's account, Jesus says something about Mary's, this anointing. He says, she has done a beautiful thing. Jesus calls her worship a beautiful thing. Um, and so what I'd like to do is just kind of hold, hold this act up for a bit, this thing she did, so we can better see its beauty because not everyone, even who was in the room, could see it. And Jesus says again in Matthew's account, not only what she has done for him is beautiful, but that this loving act that she's done will be proclaimed throughout the entire world where the gospel is preached. And we we see that global spread of the gospel. Um, So what's beautiful about this act of loving devotion And we ought to be asking in the back of our minds, what does beautiful worship look like for us, for me? Okay. Um, What would make our worship a beautiful thing done to Jesus? And the first thing we see about Mary's um, act of worship here, her, her devotion to Jesus, is that it's a costly act. Involves the giving of her very best, and it involves giving it all. Mary offers what could well be a family treasure, an heirloom, an inheritance, a a, a vial of perfume that is valued at a year's wage. A year's wage. So if we translate that into labored money these days, we're looking at what, at least 25, 30 grand? Dude, if I spent... 25 grand on a worship service. Do you know what the elders would do to me? (laughs) Mary. um, Mary can think of nothing else to do with this, this treasure. Um, Jesus had just raised her brother from the dead and gave him back to her. What else could she do with this perfume? In a word, her offering's extravagant. Some would say, could say, did say, it was wasteful. But beautiful worship is, in some sense, wasteful. Um, Resources are simply offered to God. There's no higher end. There's no practical result. We see it in those lavish offerings in the Old Testament where things were just burned up or sacrifices were given, especially at at the um, inauguration of the temple, seemingly endlessly just for the aroma of of God's pleasure, Robin Cover 
um, says that worship involves giving that which is both very costly and very precious, such that God is the only benefactor. God is the only benefactor. It's just for him. It's, it's all for him. And Mark gives us this other little tiny detail when he tells this story. He says, um, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman, that's Mary, she came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it in, in this telling over his head. Um, she broke it. She, she, you would snap the neck off of this jar, this alabaster jar. You'd, you'd break it off. And what that meant was you were going to use it all. You were going, you were going to spill it all. There's a song lyric that says, one, one day a plain village woman, driven by love for her Lord, recklessly poured out a valuable essence, disregarding the scorn. And once it was broken and spilled out, a fragrance filled all the room like a prisoner released from his shackles, like a spirit set free from the tomb, broken and spilled out, just for love of you, Jesus. My most precious treasure lavished on you, broken and spilled out, poured at your feet. Mary used it all. All $25,000 worth of this perfume. All poured out to anoint Jesus for his burial. Mary's act is beautiful because it's costly and it's beautiful because it's unrestrained. It involves her affections and her emotions. It's a passionate thing. And if anything else we pick up in this story, it's, it's that Mary was unconcerned about what others were thinking as she worshiped. Um, John tells us that she wiped the perfume on his feet with her hair. Um, as I understand it, in this culture, the letting down of a woman's hair was something that would only have been done privately in the presence of her husband. And that some suggest that the intimate affection she is displaying for Jesus would be inappropriate with any other man, not because it's a sexual thing, but because of the intimacy of the affection that's being demonstrated. But it's like Mary can't help herself. Just think, think about what she must be feeling. This is the man who gave her brother back to her. After she had mourned him for four days, she's about to explode with gratitude and love and admiration and appreciation and worship. And I can't help but wondering, by the shape of her actions, if Mary isn't the only person in the room who has an inkling of what Jesus has been repeatedly predicting, that he has come to Jerusalem to die. 
And so she breaks a vial worth more than we can fathom and pours it out and wipes it with her hair to prepare him for his burial. And honestly, if, if, you've ever, if you've ever lost a loved one, you can imagine what this would be like. But we don't, we don't really have to imagine. If you've ever, ever had a loved one wobble off far from God and be rescued by God, you get your brother back or your sister back or your granddaughter back, your son back. When we worship, we declare our gratitude and our admiration and our appreciation and our love for Jesus and for what he's done for us. Worship is an expression of love. It involves our affections and our emotions. It's not just ritual, though ritual can be helpful. It is an explosion of love from a grateful heart. It ought not be restrained by worrying about what others might think of you. And as we'll see, Mary, Mary does not allow that to happen. Um, her act is beautiful because it's costly, even extravagant, and it's unrestrained, and it's, and it's humbling. In John's telling, Mary is at Jesus' feet, anointing his feet with this costly perfume and wiping it with her hair. And you've heard it told before that the washing of feet was a despicable ritual that was considered too demeaning even for a Jewish household servant. It was reserved for foreign servants. Um, Though it could be an expression of love. And students at points could wash the feet of their disciplers. And that's where we find Mary, giving her best just to anoint Jesus' feet. Um, That's where beautiful worship takes place, by the way. It takes place at Jesus' feet. We're not, when we worship, we're not complimenting a peer. We're not high-fiving God because he did a good job. We are, we are bowing at the feet of our Savior and our King. It should make us feel small and make Him be great. Okay. And so this gathering here this morning, you know what? I'm about to bust your bubble. It's really not for you, okay? It's a shock, a shock to some, I know. You were sure we were doing this just so it would please you and we'd sing the songs you like and the pastor would teach and tell funny stories that you like. Um, It's really not. It's really not for us. It's for him, the worthy one who now in this story is six days and two miles 
from the cross. So this morning, are you here for him? Are you here to love him and adore him and worship him and passionately show your love for him? Costly, unrestrained, humbling. Her worship, as we've seen, her worship will not be deterred. A harsh rebuke will be given Mary for this and some of you have experienced that too. You, um, you give your life to following Christ and your family thinks you're nuts. They tell you so. They sit you down, they caution you, don't get carried away with this stuff. Um, and so then you downsize your house, you downgrade your car, you limit your lifestyle so you can have resources to give to kingdom work. You might even move to some place far, far away. And they think you're crazy. See, marriage, Mary challenges us to offer beautiful worship to Jesus, which is extravagant, perhaps even wasteful in the eyes of some, to do to him a beautiful thing no matter what anyone says. And the disciples turn on her, no matter. Her worship continues. It doesn't matter what others think or say, <clears throat> even really significant others. Beautiful worship is undeterred. It's costly. It's unrestrained, it's humble, and it has the cross in view. Mary is anointing Jesus for his burial, and Mark makes it clearer on that point um, than does John in Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 8. Jesus says of Mary, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Only six days from now, Jesus would be on that cross. Mary's worship was beautiful because the cross was in view and perhaps larger than she knew. The great redemptive act of Christ on the cross was what she could prepare him for, what she saw in the distance, what she glimpsed perhaps. Um, it is the central peace of worship for Christians. The cross and the resurrection. And so tonight, as we begin this Lenten season, we'll sit here in this room as a church family and we'll think together and we'll remember together and we'll worship together Christ because of his suffering and his love. We'll strive to restore order to our worship and make the cross central we're going to hear read tonight each of the four accounts as time allows of the, that night of trials and that night of suffering and then the cross. Okay. So I hope you can join us. Beautiful worship is costly, unrestrained, humbling, undeterred, cross-centered. And Mary's worship, this one act of worship, it's all these things. And as I mentioned, though, not everyone thought Mary's worship was beautiful. Uh, look at verse 4 and 5 in chapter 12. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, that's 300 days wages, and given to the poor? 
Judas, John, pushes to the front. He's the point man for this objection, for this complaint. But he's not in it alone. Uh, Matthew tells us that this complaint belongs more broadly to the disciples. And it, it never bodes well for the disciples when they're following Judas' leadership. John makes it plain here that Judas is the ringleader in this complaint, and he also makes it plain that it's really not about the poor, not in Judas' heart and mind, because Judas, it says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. In Judas' dark heart, it's really not about the poor. It's about Judas. It's about his greed. And it's interesting, when Matthew tells this this, uh, response by Judas, he bumps right up against it. This this is the next thing Matthew says in Matthew 26. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray his friend, Jesus. So he lost some coin on the whole perfume deal. And now he's got to make it up. And so he'll sell his friend. This is terrifying. See, Matthew points out really carefully Jesus is one of the twelve, or Judas is one of the twelve, rather. Uh, He had traveled with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He slept with Jesus. He... He'd seen all the healings by Jesus. He heard the teachings. He heard the prayers. He was in on all those private disciple instructional sessions. He was there. So beware, Judas tells us. Beware. Greed usurps our affections for Jesus. Greed usurps our affections for Jesus. And once we love something more than we love Jesus, we will at least demote or compromise Jesus in order to get it. We might even betray him. Judas' story, it shouts to us, Beware greed! Jesus said, Watch out! Be on your guard! against all kinds of greed. Give it a foothold. It will find its way into your heart. And when it does, it will supplant your love for Jesus there. Judas teaches us, quite unwittingly, greed is scary. It will overrun your affection for Jesus and cause you to worship something else supremely. Has greed, the love of money and stuff, caused you to offer less than beautiful worship to Jesus? And we have to beware here. 
not to set aside Judas as this unique guy who's nothing like us. He is a warning precisely because he is so much like us. John Piper says, in response to the worth of Jesus, Mary's heart was full of wonder and thankfulness and joy overflowing in lavish demonstrations of affection. And Judas' heart felt none of that, but valued money more than he valued Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. Judas loved money. And Jesus says, you can't have two masters. So, the Bible you hold in your lap is a mirror this morning. Whose reflection do you see? Do you see Mary? Or do you see Judas? In verse 7, Jesus said to the disciples, particularly Judas, who had rebuked her so indirectly and yet so powerfully, Jesus said, leave, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's interesting, Mark says of the disciples complaining against Mary that there were some who said to themselves indignantly. It's almost like they didn't even speak it out loud or they were just murmuring amongst themselves, but but Jesus knew he has an uncanny ability, still does, by the way, an uncanny ability to know what's going on in here. And so Jesus comes to her defense, and he does it out loud for everyone in the room to hear. And Matthew records a little more detail. It's worth, it's worth hearing. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we are fulfilling that prophecy today. See, Jesus gets it. He knows why Mary anointed him. It's for his burial. Jesus knew all along. Jesus knows it's six days and two miles to the cross. And he will not turn away. The gospel writers describe Jesus throughout their accounts. They say he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Even the trap set by the leaders would not deter him, nor would Judas' betrayal. There's an old song written by songwriter Michael Card that puts it this way. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Why did it have to be a heavy cross he was made to bear? And why did they nail his, hands, his feet and hands? His love would have held him there. kind of wondrous love compels the Son of God to willingly go to Jerusalem to die. Jesus said it. 
best. He said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In verse 9, large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany. They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. And because of an account of him, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so the focus returns again to Lazarus. And the leaders now, they're willing to plot to commit not one murder, but two. Two innocent men will die. And, and you see the evil coming to the front. Okay? Satan is coming out of hiding. And this whole last week, all the way to the cross, is a battleground for the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. Satan has come out of hiding. He tries to sift Peter. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. John tells us that Satan actually entered into Judas. He says, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, into Judas, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And many of you know what happens after this Lazarus Saturday. It's, it's Palm Sunday. It's... It's the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem to throngs shouting as we sang earlier, Hosanna, right? And, and paving his way with palm branches. They were, they were symbols of Jewish nationalist hope that their liberator from the Roman occupation had come at last. Uh, but Jesus doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't defer that he's their king, but he redefines what the king is coming for. He doesn't come on a war horse comes on a donkey. Verse 14 says, Jesus found, it's interesting, after hearing the shouts and seeing the palms, after that happens, John tells us that Jesus found a donkey. It's almost like he's recorrecting the people. Found a living donkey, sat on it just as it's written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so the king comes humble. Not, not with armies to conquer, but with a cross to die. And so between murderous plotting of religious leaders and greedy betrayal of one of the twelve, we find Mary's humble, passionate, undeterrable act of worship. Uh, Jesus said is a beautiful thing. And, uh, and now we get to share in a beautiful thing. Okay. Um, we get to, to come to this table and remember Jesus' sacrifice and proclaim his death until he comes. Um, it's an opportunity to do something beautiful to Jesus, to offer beautiful worship in the taking of the table and perhaps in what you bring as you come to the table. Um, maybe you bring an express an express idea, a concrete way that you can express your devotion to Jesus beautifully. Um, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Maybe there's an area of renewed obedience you know needs to mark this Lenten season, you're going to bring it. Or maybe there's a place of repentance you know you need to bring this Lenten season. 
There might be a costly discipline of pursuing God that you need to undertake with new, new fervor. The meeting of God each day in prayer and, and daily Bible reading of, of slaying greed by giving to those in need or to the work of the kingdom in some, some lavish way. Um, this table is where the last week leads. Um, everything leads here. The leader's schemes, Judas' betrayal, the last week in the redemptive hand of God leads here. All the schemes and betrayals, all all the opposition are redeemed by a sovereign Lord to bring you and me into fellowship with him through the act that this table represents, the shedding of Jesus' blood and the breaking of his body on the cross. And so we, we come to this table and we meet with him here as we remember how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. St. Augustine long ago said, Exalt, Christian, you have gained by this bargain what Judas sold and what the leaders bought belongs to you. Christ himself. Would you bow with me as we approach the table?